0: That's what be becoming enlightened is. Chopping wood and carrying water is at the end of the day, is what you go back to doing. It's changing your child's diaper. It's as simple as taking a really deep breath, feeling it in your body, and then awakening those other pathways for experiencing, yeah, the mystical and what seems like mundane everyday activities.
1: Welcome to On Renewal. This is your host, Sam Sager. I'm so excited to share this discussion with Tracy Townsend on the power of psychedelics, the nature of conscious experience, the illusion of separation, and so many other mind-bending topics. Tracy just resigned from her role as an orthopedic surgeon after reaching the pinnacle of traditional healthcare to create something new on the frontier of psychedelic medicine. I'm so inspired by her commitment to more holistic healing and believe there's so much we can learn from how she integrates these ideas into her own life. So let's jump in. Tracy, welcome. I am super excited to chat with you today. How are how are you feeling?
0: I'm feeling good. I went for a walk outside in the morning, which I don't always get a chance to, and that always sets the tone. So I'm feeling good right now.
1: I love it. I was I was doing some light breath work before this and I feel like that that aligns to a lot of your philosophy. So There's so many different things for us to chat about. I thought it would be fun to kick it off and and just orient people with a bit on who you are and what you're up to right now.
0: Yeah, I did a residency in general orthopedic surgery. That was in Los Angeles, so for five years. Um, And then I pursued a fellowship in pediatric orthopedic surgery for one year in Boston um, at Boston Children's Hospital. And then I um, was in practice for a little over a year here in Oregon. Um, and, um, sort of all along the way, really going back to my intern or my first year of residency, I, uh, started exploring psychedelics really for myself, for my own healing and, um, had some amazingly transformational experiences, um, within very intentional ceremonial containers and, um, and sort of along the way there were kind of kind of in lockstep, there was all of the maps, um, research coming along. Michael Pollan's book was published. There's been a real just groundswell of energy, uh, movement towards legalizing psychedelics, um, for the first time in decades. And, um, things just aligned such that I, there happened to be a job opening in Portland, which I took thinking, um, that I would eventually maybe five, 10 years down the line after practicing a bit, um, move into kind of the psychedelic medicine space. But um, I enrolled in a facilitator training program called Inner Trek, and just started meeting and connecting with so many like-minded people. And it became increasingly obvious to me, almost on like a bodily level, that my heart was just in that space and no longer... Um, no longer in conventional medicine and in orthopedic surgery and so um yeah i had to i mean i worked with a coach for 6 months to just like really gain some clarity on my feelings around all this because um yeah i spent 11 years between medical school and residency um sort of training you know in a yeah in a highly subspecialized field
1: you no, that pesky embodied wisdom, when you reach the pinnacle of this thing you've been pursuing, and then your body's like, crap, do I really want this? It's super annoying yeah. and super impressive.
0: <laughs> well, it's like, it's amazing because, you know, it's such a, I mean, it's a commitment. Going into medical school, I was very attracted to surgery as a, as a specialty. I, I knew I wanted to do, practice surgery. I think I was just really attracted to the ritual of it. Um... And also just the yeah, the, I mean, I was just fascinated by the operating room and human anatomy and just the gratification of, um, you know, somebody who has an acute problem and, and, you know, so many times surgery is the only solution. I found it really gratifying working with those patients. Um, but, but you know, it's such a long road. And I, I as a person, have just evolved so much. And so, um, yeah, it's just acknowledging that. Um, I've changed as a person, and I, I I don't feel at all like I'm I'm walking away like not putting anything any of my experiences to use. Like I can still take all of the knowledge and experiences and just apply them in this new area.
1: Totally, and it's you know it's so on theme with this podcast around this idea of renewal and acknowledging when we change and then actually doing things about it. Um, and I and I imagine kind of the background you have will not only benefit you and your experiences, but it brings so much credibility to see somebody at that pinnacle who steps into this new kind of uncharted space. So I'm curious, what captivated you about psychedelics? Like what specifically was it that when you first encountered them and experienced them just really made you interested and committed to them?
0: So I started my intern year of residency, my first year of residency, I Moved, I just graduated from UVA on the East Coast and moved, I matched into LA, moved across the country. I didn't know anybody um, in the city. And I started this, you know, 80-hour-a-week job. And you're just thrown at sink or swim into patient care. And uh, I started a meditation practice because I I really was struggling kind of with that time because I felt like I had achieved everything I had set out to to achieve um, it was like my childhood dream to be, a. I always wanted to be a doctor since I was very young. felt like I should feel fulfilled. Like it was like you, you keep climbing the ladder and you feel like, oh, when I achieve this, then I will feel that peace that I'm seeking or that fulfillment. Um, and yeah, I was feeling anything but that. Um, I started a meditation practice, you know, seeking something. Um, and started that practice. And then later that year, um, was when, you know, I just crossed paths with some friends who, um, introduced me to an ayahuasquera who travels from Brazil up to LA to hold ayahuasca circles. And so, um, I, I would say I was just deep in the search myself just for some sort of meaning. I had imagined an inner, you know, like a, a public county hospital in South Central Los Angeles and just coming face to face with really the epitome of a lot of suffering that happens and in in humanity. And I think, I mean, that's what drew me to medicine too was just this like kind of curiosity about the human condition and the role that suffering and tragedy plays. And then also um, recognizing that I was carrying a lot of my own trauma, childhood trauma, intergenerational trauma, um, but completely kind of unaware of it, unprocessed grief from my father passing away when I was in college, things like that. I went into that <laughs> that ceremony um, really more out of curiosity than anything. And also, I mean, a healthy dose of fear as well from everything I'd heard about it because I was, I knew I was carrying that pain from my father's death, but I wasn't ready to confront it in any way. But it was, um, I mean, I happened to sit with just a really, I mean, just like a really... Um, just a really authentic and integrity-filled, you know, shaman who held this space for me and then just had just a breakthrough, of, you know, what What will be described in the research is like a, a full-on mystical experience there, just like kind of that experience of, I mean, there, it's ineffable, there's no way to describe it, but it was deeply, deeply healing for me. And, um, and that just launched me on a path to just exploring what my own psyche and consciousness really is. And just, I was just like, this is incredible. I had no idea that this other way of experiencing reality existed and it feels more real than my normal waking reality. And at the same time too, I'm like developing my, my own philosophy on medicine because I'm seeing these patients in the hospital every day. And it just, it and having gone through medical school too, I it just became clear to me that so much of what presents to us in the healthcare system is actually psychospiritual pain or intergenerational pain or trauma you know, childhood trauma. I just saw the impact of um these medicines in my own life and I was like how I just was really curious about how this could impact, you know, how we deliver like care. Like if we, if we treat people with spirit and their psyche first, then maybe the physical problems will resolve.
1: It's so interesting. As you say that, I think about how social determinants of health have become this big buzzword and people rightfully so are finally looking at things like homelessness and food insecurity and these social dynamics and saying like that drives healthcare outcomes. But what you're saying makes me think that they need to take it to the next step and look at like spiritual determinants of health.
0: Yes. And and that's, you know, the we kind of like medicine, medicine used to be practiced with one with kind of through one person within the village. And that was the shaman. The shaman was both the priest and the doctor in one person. And then kind of as, you know, like Western civilization has evolved and, you know, we go through, you know, the a separation of you know like church and and state and just like science and spirit there's this like kind of bifurcation and uh, which is totally necessary and so you know that was all part of i feel like just part of our evolution but um we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater and just ignored yeah. um ignored that aspect of you know hum- the human condition and to our detriment, if you ask me. And so I'm really curious about how to um, merge or integrate those things once again. Um, uh, really, to, for, because, because health is really all about like, becoming whole again. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can really become whole again without addressing that aspect of yourself. Um, and uh, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a responsible way to do it, I think moving forward. Um, and, but yeah, that's like really what I'm probably most interested in.
1: Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I think that idea of wholeness is something that in my own life and my own journey has become a driving force that, that I seek out as I think about health and wellness and and all these different areas. And it's largely completely removed from the traditional healthcare system in so much of it's treating isolated issues and certainly, you know, very few places, um, are, is that being incorporated? I'm curious within that context, like what is it that you think makes psychedelics so powerful? I know that's a big question, but is there a way in which you could introduce kind of what you think they do for people?
0: For better or worse, with a sufficient dose of a psychedelic in the right set and setting, it um you have no choice but to surrender to the experience. And so, Uh, It really, to me, they, they are a medicine in that way for quieting down all of, you know, they're sort of a, a, sort of a neurophysiological way of describing it would be your, you know, quieting down your default mode network that operates like in your central nervous system that just dictates, um, it, how you experience reality. And so what psychedelics do is kind of, it's like a forced shutdown of that, um, those neural pathways and allow other neural pathways to come online, which allow uh, for a, just a fundamentally different experience of reality that is just as valid and true. Um, and, and I think when, you know, I actually believe that we evolved to have these experiences on a somewhat regular basis, um, like for our for our well being, um, but it's only you know over the course of um, you know, various kind of events in history, and um, I mean we can talk more about this, but that that didn't that was basically shut down those the opportunity for those experiences collectively, and I think we are seeing um, the effects of of that on like on the human spirit today. And so uh, a lot of what psychedelics do is just open you up to mm-hmm. um the the ecstasy and the bliss that is meant to be the polarity to the suffering and the pain and the tragedy that is also the human condition. And so it allows for a full spectrum of living, of vitality that is just really difficult to access. Um, without those without those settings and it's it's accessible without psychedelics you know through various you know breathwork practices or just being in nature but um but what I feel like they do is just lift the veil of what's possible in terms of experiencing reality and then you can cultivate practices to then have that experience without without psychedelics
1: So much of that resonates. It's bringing me back after reading Michael Pollan's book. I I wanted to experiment myself. And the dominant feeling I remember is just this deep, deep fear of letting go of control. Uh, This sense that I, I didn't even realize I had going into it of like how much I wanted to control my experience and how going through this process required me to let go of that and accept whatever came. And it's funny you mentioned the whole how that like opens other doors is I've tried meditation. I tried breath work, all these different things before that. But having experienced a totally different way of perceiving things, my interest and desire and kind of commitment to those other avenues just blossomed so much more. It was like, I got a taste and then I was able to experience it. So I'm curious, do you find that happens for a lot of people?
0: Um, Yes. I I mean, it certainly happened. I can definitely speak to it from my experience. And this is kind of the experiment I want to pursue with other patients or clients or whomever. It's... um, you know, these, uh, like I said before that one of the best things you can do going into your first psychedelic you know, intentional psychedelic experience is, um, to, to start a meditation practice if you don't have one already. And then it'll serve you for, you know, surrendering into the, the psychedelic experience. But then when you return to that practice afterwards, you have a nice little AB test of just how you were, you know, like arriving to the practice. And, um, and, yeah, my meditation practice drastically changed, um, deepened incredibly um, after my own experiences. I know I remember hearing um, uh, I remember hearing about Stanislav Grof, who, you know, did, he he was saying that he had a five MEO DMT experience and that that drastically deepened his meditation experience you know practice as well that was the first time i had really heard of someone speaking to this idea of psychedelics being a tool for you know either catalyzing or deepening a meditation practice and um just the benefits of meditation are just you know limitless and if it's something if these medicines do nothing but help people you know build a meditation practice i think the the ripple effects of that on on society would just be uh, massive
1: Totally, and I've had some mentors, you know, say like, "Well, psychedelics carry risks, and meditation is another pathway to get that." And I think that that's a hundred percent true, as you say. But so many people never get to the point where they deepen enough into the meditation to experience that. And so, I I think if this sends people down that pathway with more kind of vigor and commitment, I think that's, that's amazing. I'm I'm curious if you, because I think you've painted a picture around how this can be a, a catalyst for transformation. What are some specific areas that you think that they like use cases, you might say for people who, how, like how this process can specifically kind of help them transform in a, in a more concrete way.
0: I really feel like every area of your life. And when I think about it within the realm of like of medicine or healthcare, that it will transform all areas of this, whether it's your, I mean, it really comes down to transforming your relationship to let all of life your intimate relationships, your relationship to your body, your mind, your heart, your relationship to food. They say that you can kind of categorize uh, psychedelic experiences into mind revealing and sort of more transpersonal or mystical experiences. And, uh, you know, they're both, you know, incredibly, you know, just beneficial and useful in their own way. And take something like your relationship to food, let's say. So I myself struggled with, with this because, um, whether it was disordered eating in some way, or just, you know, I would go, I would, you know, when I was younger, like in my early twenties, just, um, you know, it was like a sort of a punishing process. Sometimes I'd become really, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to eat really clean and be really restrictive and, um, and be really on point with my macros and all these things. And, and then, uh, would just completely fall off the horse and Mm -hmm. go into like a, what I call like, eff it, you know, binge mode and um, yo-yo between that. I think it's an incredibly, even though it wasn't to the point of being pathological, like anorexia or bulimia or something like that. um, I just feel like it's an incredibly common experience for a lot of young women or take, you know, um, you know, or just the obesity epidemic. I think something like 40% of, you know, adult Americans are going to be classified as obese, you know, in the next in the next uh, decade, which is almost one out of two people, I mean, it's it's truly this is the epidemic, and it's just um, it, it's a manifestation of some you know of you know what I I really do feel like is your relationship to life, um, and so because food is used as like you know as an emotional you know numbing agent, it's a distraction or it's um, just the whole there's not a ton of conscious you know, conscious relationship to food, this idea that food can be your medicine and medicine can be your food. So I feel like um, just opening up one's awareness to that in the most visceral way possible, um, it becomes, you you instead look at food as like almost having like a vibrational energy. And then it's like, oh, how is this food going to help me, make me feel on an energetic level? You just become, it would just very a subtle, can be a subtle thing. Um, and when you've never engaged with, you know, your reality in that way. And, um, and so you can, you can catalyze that for people. And then, and then this, it, you, you kind of open up your intuitive awareness of what's good for your body to eat and what's not. And it no longer becomes this, like, this stroke of kind of overt, Struggle or control to try to resist and and and, and just becomes like a more easeful, intuitive... You, you don't even want to eat certain things after, you know, you do a big enough dose of mushrooms and you're just like, wow, you're... I mean, a lot of these things can have a purgative effect too on your body, but sure. you just... All of a sudden, you're just engaging with food in a totally different way. And I think that alone, that would be like one concrete example. Um, yeah, it's funny,
1: and, and I... I didn't plant you to, to say this, but I, I don't know if you're, um, I, I just launched a, a new newsletter called Intuitive Fitness, which is really about this idea of our relationship to exercise and our relationship to fitness. And in, in my work, the parallels that you're describing with food are so prevalent in fitness as well. And I think what's fascinating about what you're saying is, I think people fixate on the what I eat, what I exercise, but they don't confront their relationship with those things. They don't look at kind of the all the other stuff that comes up connected to that. And I I was chatting with a friend recently about fasting and how fasting is an exercise that has health benefits, but it also has benefits in just like opening yourself up to your own relationship with food and seeing those subconscious stuff that bubbles up. So yeah, there's, there's so much there and it's, it's fascinating to think about, you know, I hadn't thought about, you know, psychedelics as a tool to, to do that. Um, it's, it's really the, the potential on, on that side is, is just monumental. So I'm curious, cause I know you're, you're launching this new initiative. You're kind of right at the cusp of it. How do you see these all coming together in terms of, you know, helping people pursue wellness, or if you want to share a bit about kind of how you're thinking about bringing this into practice, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that side of it.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm working on building now, um, which is what I call the new paradigm of medicine. Um, which is, it's sort of it, it's, it's a paradigm shift in a, in a few ways. One is um, this idea of um, addressing your psychospiritual self, is what I call it, or you know, you could call it your emotional self, your mental, the mental body, like addressing that. Problems from that angle rather than strictly the physical symptom level. Um, And it's a flip in that way. And it's also a flip in a way of uh, really activating this idea of creator consciousness, shifting from victim consciousness to creator consciousness. So much of how we practice medicine now is still deeply paternalistic. There's been, you know, there's the pendulum is swinging away from that, but it's still so far on the end of, of paternalistic. And so, um, meaning that, you know, a patient comes to the doctor as an expert and they're going to, you know, bring their problems, you know, in a 20 minute visit to you. And then you as the expert with that limited amount of data are going to, you know, give your expert opinion about what to do. And I, I feel like really the true expert for each person is your own self. There's nobody who has as much data about what is going on than you. You are walking around in your body every day. You're experiencing, you know, inputs and outputs um, yourself in a way that no doctor ever could. And so you, you really are the expert. And so it's really empowering people to, to become the expert of their own health. And so there's this concept um, kind of within the psilocybin therapy model um, at least here in Oregon, about awakening the inner healer, and so um, it's again going back to like that, that, like awakening that intuitive knowing, that intuitive intelligence, that innate intelligence that exists in your body, in your nervous system, um, and so and so it, it, it's a shift also away from from uh, being focused on pathology. So you know, as as people come seeking whatever seeking the medicine um, that you don't have to be diagnosed with anything. Like you're not, you know, a lot of what you're experiencing is actually a normal response to whatever it is you've been exposed to in your life. And, um, and, uh, and so, and so what I'm hoping to do is really create a practice that is centered around these principles to allow people to seek out the medicine, however they see it, you know, through whatever they would like to, potentially address and create um, it's sort of like to me, a more feminine approach of just holding a space, like a safe and um, beautiful space to awaken that inner healer in each and every person. And then, you know, like we were talking about before, just catalyzing those, uh, that those neural pathways that open you up to being able to receive the, the wisdom that, is inherent in all of these other practices, these kind of more esoteric practices. And then, and then hopefully watching that kind of unfold into physical, you know, healing of whatever physical ailment someone might be moving through.
1: So it sounds like what you're talking about is more creating conditions for healing to unfold naturally versus the medical model where it's like, you're going to come in here and we're going to force you to heal as fast as we possibly can. And whether you like it or not in some ways.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, the sort of the Western allopathic approach to medicine, the, what I, the conventional healthcare model, like, it's really effective. And really, they, we carry out modern day miracles all the time mm-hmm. for certain conditions or certain situations, mostly for acute situations, you know, if you, I always use this example, but if you are in a car, you know, a car accident, you break your femur, Um, you know, that, that would be something that could, that would make you bed bound and could kill you. You know, you develop a blood clot and then you get a, you know, DVT and you get a P and you die. Now we routinely are able to, you know, put a a nail or a rod in your femur, um, through a minimally invasive approach and have you walking on it the same day. And it's just incredible. And we save lives that way. Um, and so, and that's, that's not available everywhere in the world today. That's still yeah. places in the world where, um, you know, I was in Guatemala, I remember, and there was, um, a, a 12 a year old boy, the news story down there at the time, uh, when I was in medical school studying Spanish there, um, was that there was a 12 year old boy who would, he had broken his femur and the family couldn't get the implants or the care, you know, to, he was just waiting for surgery. So, you know, it's not something that I take. I really try not to take it for granted at all. But, um, at the same time we've been trying to apply, um, these principles to more chronic situations that are really based in kind of lifestyle behavioral, you know, what just really comes down to the choices every day of what you eat, whether you move, how you take care of your mind, how you are able to engage in your personal relationships. Um, And and we we try to develop, you know, largely pharmaceutical methods of addressing these issues. And we, I believe, end up causing a lot more harm along the way. And so I I think people are are pretty aware of limitations um, of that approach and and hence sort of the the kind of the wave of interest in uh, psychedelic medicines.
1: Yeah. It, I, I feel like I'm a walking example of this because I'm a type one diabetic and 50, 60, I guess, hundred years ago, maybe I'd be dead, right? Like the, without the use of modern medicine and insulin, I would have just passed away. And yet most people with type one diabetes have depression and anxiety. Like there's data showing the vast majority because we're treating the illness, but we're not then supporting the person on how their relationship with it and the stress of all that. So I think there's so much that potential there. I th- the last question related to your practice before we talk about a few kind of other areas I'm super curious about. So w- somebody wants to go through that. What is that going to look like? Is it mostly, you know, guided sessions? Are there, are you incorporating other elements? I'm fascinated by how you're bringing, you know, your unique perspective to create something here.
0: That is all to be determined, really, is what we're working through right Amazing. now. You know, there's already, yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a topic of conversation pretty much every day now. Um, so, I mean, that's what's so exciting about this space is truly how it's a totally new frontier. There's very little established standards, you know, of care or practice here. And so the potential for innovation is just limitless. Um, and that's, what's really attracted me to it. Um, but you know, there's, there's sort of, um, you know, there, I, I kind of conceptualize it sometimes and, you know, coming from the conventional health healthcare system as like opportunities for, um, you know, there's a sort of deeper dives or there's retreat, well-established retreat models already, um in the world. And so, you know, in certain places, at least for psilocybin. And so, um, you could do kind of more of a deep dive, um, you know, for you know, several days or a week or weeks at a time, um, kind of, um, moving through, uh, transformational work there, which would entail, you know, kind of a, a preparation phase, um, the immersion with the ceremony, you know, the ceremony or the journey and then the integration period afterwards, Um, and then that can be a series, you know, I, I always like to tell people to, um, there's sort of this expectancy that's coming about now as people hear more about the research and, and that kind of thing that it's sort of, you know, this after one journey will be changed. And so it's actually, it's, to me, it's just initiating people into the use These medicines, um, and as a tool, one of many tools, Um, and so you you know it's not going to be uncommon to return back to it, um, you know, periodically. Um, And so, yeah, I kind of think of it as kind of deeper dive, kind of a retreat model, but then also um, opportunities for not everyone had you know can can take weeks out of their life um, to do something like that. So I'm really excited about, and this part is totally new um, with sort of creating almost like an outpatient model of it where you work, you work with a therapist or a coach or a facilitator, um, you know, in prep, but still that kind of three, three phase model of a preparation, the journey and the integration really, really to me, a lot of the innovation will be around the integration piece of it because it's one thing to open people up to these higher states of consciousness. uh, But how do you take altered states and make them altered traits that's like mm. the good goal is not to just have these, you know, otherwise it becomes a bit of an, it can become a bit of an escapism, its own form of mm. escapism to just continually return to psychedelic experiences to have these peak experiences. Like to me, the goal should be like how to fundamentally rewire our, our you know, our neurophysiology to be able to access this, you know, new way of being in your regular, you know, sober or waking state. Um, And that's where all these other modalities, um, you know, meditation, breath work, ecstatic dance, yoga, all of these things start to open up for people as in a way that wasn't available to them before. And I just feel like there will be a flourishing, like an whole new ecosystem of like, instead of going to, you know, a doctor and getting prescribed, you know, surgery or a pill, you, you know, like are working with a facilitator to to help guide you where you are ultimately leading the path on your own healing journey to explore all of these different avenues and, and find what resonates for you and what resonates for you for a certain period of your life of whatever you're moving through won't necessarily resonate with you, you further down the line, but it's it just opens up this, this whole new universe of uh, practices and, and ways of being.
1: It sounds amazing. I think it's going to make a lot of people jealous of those who are living in Portland and have kind of more access to this at least sooner. What do you recommend for people in terms of starting to explore or just learn more about this or experience some of this, given how emergent all this is and you know, how things like the laws and all this stuff are changing in real time? Like, what would you recommend to people who are interested and want to start going down some of this path?
0: Um, I mean, there are certainly so many, you know, books and podcasts and so many resources um, out there now. Um, I'm actually I'm trying to put together a list myself, um, just for people who want to start exploring this space, depending on where you are in your exploration. Um uh, and just talk about it more because you'll find other people who resonate and are also interested, um, just share about it. Fortunately, there's not as much stigma around it. I feel like I, I was really reluctant to talk about these things seven years ago, but luckily those things are shifting. Um, and, uh, yeah. And just, I mean, I, I also feel like um, I mean, to be honest, I didn't access these things in an above ground, you know, setting, I think, I do believe there are safe, um, safe ways to explore these as long as you follow the principles of set setting and intention, um, with somebody else who is experienced that you trust. Um, it doesn't have to be in this, you know, in this, um, in, in this one set, you know, legal setting. Um, but, but um, But I would say, you know, just I would just encourage people to, of course, you know, exercise discernment um, around this. I think there's sometimes some I I found there can because because a lot of what draws people to these things is really your own sense of kind of desperation and whatever you might be moving through a lot of times. And and there's also, you know, just curiosity and open minded people. But just to um, just to my 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 recommendation would be to just um, uh, uh, wait until you feel like you feel called for a particular opportunity um, rather than trying to, to force it to happen. Um, you know, you could always come to Oregon too. If if you want like a safe legal, uh, uh, you know, state sanctioned way of doing it, you know, fortunately we'll be able to serve people from elsewhere, but and hope. And also That's you could cool. also, you um, yeah, investigated in your own state too. You know, if there are sort of local grassroots move, movements to um, push these things through at the local level.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like that was one of the most powerful parts about Michael Pollan's book is that he's not the traditional person that introduces people to this. And so I feel like he's a character that can really present a more nuanced and kind of help meet people where they are um, and a lot of times people get introduced to it through people who are kind of so far down that rabbit hole that there's such a gap. So it's, it's cool to see. And I think that's where the legalization has so much power is because it'll create containers that are safe, accessible, that feel really supportive for people. Um, so, yeah, that is super exciting stuff. I, I thought it'd be fun to jump into you know, I, just some of your thoughts on different areas that are loosely connected to, to all these these ideas you mentioned earlier kind of this idea of right relationship. And I've seen you write a bit about like this notion of right relationship, being in right relationship to life. And so I'd I'd be curious to hear what you mean by that.
0: I mean, it's inspired by kind of a Buddhist philosophy of, um, of living. And then also just, I think it's, um, a unique, somewhat like a uniquely human kind of way of being in terms of, you know, conceptualizing, um, you know, conceptualizing your life through relationships. It's also kind of a return to, I feel like more feminine principles, but, um, but that, you know, like each it's a, it's a, whether, like I said, it's through intimate relationships or your relationship to yourself or various, you know, various, whatever it is you engage in, uh, you know, for movement or eating or enjoying a piece of content or something like that. It's, it's this dynamic, uh, exchange and, and, it's a dynamic process and, um, and to, yeah. And there's, there's a way to, um, you know, there's a way, a way to be in relationship to each of these facets of your, of your life in a sort of a, a more conscious kind of way. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, examining how, how you show up in each of these ways. Um, and, and then, and then witnessing how it then gets reflected back to you, um, you know, in in any sort of capacity. So, um, and you can look at kind of you know the your relationship. It really it really can apply to any aspect of your life, whether it's um, you know your relationship to work or your relationship um, to your business, yeah, your work, your business, your, your loved ones, your relationship to nature, your relationship to anything. Um, uh, and so we're always in relationship with something. There's always like this, like, it's like a principle of reciprocity. Um, and sometimes I think we've fallen into, um, being in a more extractive receiving and it's, you know, and it's, when we engage in the energy of reciprocity of like giving back, then we are, we come into balance and feel is that right relationship again.
1: Yeah. You mentioned nature and I'm, I'm just reflecting on, I've always loved nature, but after having a psychedelic experience, like that sense of interconnection and that, um, that feeling of like separation kind of just was, was a little bit different. And I, I've heard you talk a little bit about this, like illusion of separation. Um, but it's like, I didn't really, I had heard people talk about it, but I just felt like it was like this esoteric thing I couldn't understand. And then experiencing some sl- like slight version of it, it was like, whoa, like, so could you describe that to people? Or do you feel like that's something that like, you can't even really put words to?
0: I, yeah, I, I'll do my best. I mean, I've, I, I no feel like, uh, yeah, I feel like John Pervinke, a cognitive scientist, you know, he, he, he does such a beautiful uh, he has a beautiful way of talking about these things, but, um, you know, there's, we have this conception of just us as individual and atomized entities, like, you know, I stop where my body, you know, the ed- edges of my body stop, or, or even further, there's like a separation within the body of like, I'm here, you know, living in my head, and then there's just the rest of my body. Um, but there's a way of being where you can direct your awareness to you know, out of your head, back into the body is sort of this, like these practices of embodiment because your, your nervous system, first of all, your central nervous system goes all the way down through your spinal cord down to, you know, your, your, like the root. And then, but then there's your whole peripheral nervous system as well. And there's a whole intelligence, you know, in all of that. So you can t- kind of distribute your, your cognitive, you know, capacities throughout the body. Um, by directing your awareness to various areas, but then also your, your actual like experience of reality, your, the sense, your sense perceptions, your feelings, everything. The, it actually doesn't end at the edges of your, your body. You can actually extend it outside. There's, it extends out beyond the edges. So, and, and this is where I think there's actually wonderful possible therapeutic applications of, you know, with, with, you know, psilocybin in particular in nature, because you can actually experience that under the met with, with the medicine where you there's a dissolving of boundaries that are, you realize are they're illusory in that way, because there's a total dis- experience of a dissolution of that. And you become one with your environment um, and it extends indefinitely out. And so there's like this exchange between your inner and outer world um and so yeah that's my best take on it um and so and, and then it goes beyond that it goes you know so there's not there, you know it's not like you know i'm me and then there's nature like you you are nature you're a product of you're actually quite literally just a, like a product of planet earth and then and then also there's this idea of like an illusion of separation between us and other humans us and mm-hmm. other animals you know and it's just like that you, you start to realize that there's like a, a deep intimate kind of exchange of energy constantly going on, um, that, it, you know, you're impacting each other all the time. Um, and so, yeah, there's, you know, people talk about having a sense of, or feeling of kind of oneness or is like universality of experience that's available, um, with these, with these medicines.
1: Yeah. I, I think you, you painted a, a nice picture there. It feels like this connects to this idea of like conscious experience as a controlled hallucination. And I I feel like when I like before having a psychedelic for the first time, I just assumed that my way of perceiving the word world was like the only way I could perceive the world. And then you're confronted with, Oh crap. Like here's a different way of perceiving things. (laughs) Like how does that, how does that play into all this? And like, how would you, how would you describe that dynamic?
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, Aldous Huxley famously, you know, referred to the mind as a reducing valve. So, you know, we have um, all of this information coming at us, you know, whether it's like through photons and light energy or sound or uh, everything, just a bombarding of information into like our senses, which then get filtered through our, our brain and then into, and then our brain reconstructs. You know, with that information, it discards the vast majority of it and then constructs a reality and experience that is based on your past experiences mm. of life. Um, and not just that, but it's also based on what is evolutionarily beneficial to you as an Organism, you know, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, and kind of you know constantly shifting between your you know sympathetic nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, or rest and digest. Like you're just like this organism that is taking in information, casting away what's not you know evolutionarily beneficial, and then for your survival, and then. And then to constructing reality that helps you, you know, achieve certain goals or directives and and that kind of thing. So um, and then yeah, depending on your your previous life experiences, the family you're born into, you're especially during your kind of formative years when your nervous system is just coming online as a, as an infant, as a as a toddler, as a child, as a teenager. Um, uh, you know, those are those are those tend to have you know disproportionate. Kind of influence on how you perceive reality, um, because and that becomes part of a lens through which everything gets filtered. Um, and so it's yeah described as a, a controlled hallucination because um, you're you're hallucinating your 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 experience of reality. And so because uh, it's a construct of the mind of the human mind. And so once you understand that, and I. And especially again, just t- I mean, tying it back to what a psychedelic experience does, which is uh, it changes that the the pathways that filter the information sense information coming into your into your awareness. And so, if you then kind of shut down the the normal filters or lenses, and then now you're filtering all your sensor information through other neural pathways, um, and then you have that experience that is just as real, um, because it's, it's, you know, it's based on objective data that's coming into your field. Um, I think that just becomes incredibly, um, salient for you that, that idea, um, because you're having, again, controlled hallucinations like in your psychedelic experience. Um, they're just of a fundamentally different kind of nature because they're being filtered through other neural pathways that aren't typically available. And so, and so, once you experience that, you can kind of learn to toggle, like, out of your default mode network, like into these other pathways, and just have a fundamentally different experience, day to day experience of reality. That, if you ask me, is because because of the way that we sort of evolved evolutionarily to focus on it only paid to focus on negative the negative or threats or dangers in your environment, it didn't really pay off for our ancestors to sit around being blissed out, like by all of the, you know, whatever was in the surrounding environment. Um, You know, it was really useful and adaptive, but has become those, those mechanisms have become maladaptive in the modern world. And so there's a way to kind of rewrite those neural pathways um, intentionally um, again, through integration work. And so it it, it, to me is intrinsically more a more pleasant, you know, like a a, a more peaceful or a peaceful existence to Mm -hmm. to kind of bring those that other way of being online and not just, you know, be in the in the survival mode all the time.
1: Yeah, there's a way it seems like it really helps break that rigidity. And I'm fascinated by how as people age, they often become more and more rigid. I think Michael Pollan even talked about that a bit in his book, where he was arguing that, especially as people get later in life, where their thinking has kind of solidified and their kind of habits have gotten a little bit more locked in, like this is a particularly powerful tool that can open people up to evolution, to transformation. I'm curious, because I know you have a, a young child, right?
0: Yes, I have a
1: two-and-a-half-year-old. Amazing. And I have a I have a nine-and-a-half-month-old, so this is very kind of present for me. Like, given all these dynamics, I, I imagine it gives you a pretty unique perspective, all these things that you're thinking about in terms of how you approach parenting. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you – like, what's your philosophy or how do you think about parenting within the context of all of these things you're thinking about with the mind and experiences and perception?
0: Yeah, it is – I mean, it's pretty trippy. I think, like, bringing a child into the world after having these experiences, like, just this concept of you know conscious parenting, I'm fascinated by. I feel like um, you know we don't have a ton of role models for for this way of parenting, but I I for sure um, feel like understanding uh, my son's development from a like more a nervous system level. Um, and also understanding ego development and how it's, it's a very healthy thing to have this, this been an an essential, um, for ego development. Um, but kind of, I I feel like in parenting in general, maybe has shifted to, especially in the early years to more social, emotional, you know, of more social, emotional emphasis. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, definitely, it definitely influences me in terms of approaching kind of encouraging his healthy development um, at, just as a human being um, but also i feel like it has i feel like i am able to be a much more present parent than i probably would have been had i not had these experiences and had these other practices as well and so um you know it's an enc- it's by far the most challenging you know, challenging thing about, you know, forget yep. surgery, residency and call and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I always, you know, I think of parenting is really one of the most, again, also a potent catalyst for your own evolution and growth. Um, and yeah, one, I think, sometimes when I hear about the challenges parents talk about with raising children, um, a lot of it, you know, I think can be distilled down sometimes just to um, whether or not there's true presence um, in the, cause children are naturally present. Um, that's just their, you know, that's how we're all born. is to experience reality is just totally in the present moment. And, um, and so if it's a constant challenge for me to meet him in that present moment and Mm. to have that inform how I respond to him. Um, and I think, uh, I believe, you know, that that's all children ultimately are seeking in that relationship, you know, in all relationships really is just like, real presence Um, and it's in such short supply these days, especially just with our, the way our lives are um, uh, constructed. Um, But uh, yeah. And I also feel like I, you know, I'm, I'm excited. He's, he's still a little young, although we're starting to implement these kinds of things, but yeah, just uh, encouraging, you know, um, kind of encouraging the, since we're all born with this kind of, you know, presence to, to help keep that intact as he develops his ego, but then also giving him the tools to manage his own emotions and, you know, reactions to, um, to his experiences. And so, you know, like teaching him how to breathe and, you know, it. and uh, yeah, mindfulness really from a really young age.
1: You're totally right. Our daughter's presence is such a invitation and a challenge to us to meet her there And on the nervous system front, I I think I've shared this in an earlier episode, but um, I had just taken Johnny Miller's course on breath work and he'd introduced this idea of this humming breath. And so when she was really young and she was like really upset, I just one day picked her up and tried like humming like through this breath that's really slow and calming for my nervous system. And within like 10, 15 seconds, she just like dropped her whole nervous system, like fell. And I've shared it with a few other people. And it, it seems like they've had similar success with just their kid really calming down. And so I've become fascinated on how the way in which we regulate our nervous systems helps support them. I'm curious, do you have any other tips or tricks that you found in terms of creating a, a nervous system friendly environment for raising a kid?
0: I mean, well, first of all, that's a beautiful example of just this idea of co-regulation um, where they, um, you know, we're all kind of mirrors for each other, but especially young children are just mirroring a lot of what they're experiencing in their environment, which is, you know, a dominant kind of presence in their environment is you as a parent. Mm. Um, and so, um, uh, I mean, that's a beautiful example of it. I think really when we, this concept of filling your own cup and making sure yeah. your cup is filled so that you can be a kind of parent, show up as the kind of parent that you, you know, want to be, that you maybe wish you had that, that is kind of uh, first and foremost. And so, you know, we can't, um, I don't think, I think it's just extremely where i I've witnessed myself fall short is because I haven't taken care of myself first. Um, you can't, you can't give from an empty place. Um, and so whatever that looks like for you as a parent, you know, if it's like, you know, it, it feels selfish sometimes in the moment, but like if you need to take time to do what you need to do to feel good, then do by all means you should do that. Um, and then, and then in your, in the way that you show up, that will be, you know that will be reflected to you and your in your children's state as well. I think the reason, you know, it's crazy how prevalent anxiety and depression is in our children, even really young children now. I mean, it is I saw so many kids in my in my old practice who are just prescribed all sorts of medications. And then if you see, if you just do a little bit of digging into the family life, it's, um, it's just a reflection of the home environment. Um, and then there's other, you know, there's other strategies too, in terms of just, you know, in sort of biohacking realm, you know, for helping support your nervous system, whether that's like, you know, keeping hyper-stimulating, you know, things out of you know, as much to a minimum, um, and then prioritizing things like just as simple as being outside as much as possible. Yeah. I think that's one of the best ways to help encourage the development of a healthy nervous system. Yeah.
1: My daughter and I both calm down as soon as we get out in the garden or or in the woods. I, I've seen you ri- write about this idea of this tension between individuation and in- integration, and I just was fascinated as soon as I saw that phrase because I feel like with my own daughter, so much of the tension or challenges. Like how do we help her be fully herself and how do we prepare her to socialize and integrate into society? And it's like, I wrestle with that every single day or like, I don't know exactly what to do with that tension. How, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, as an infant, yeah, it even starts as young as like being an infant when you're just moving through teaching your child how to sleep and move through sleep cycles. Um, But I I didn't come to that framework until, yeah, just a few weeks ago, I was listening to, I think, I was listening to a podcast about it. And that kind of first principles way of approaching it just resonated so much with me. Um, And uh, I think it's just, uh, I mean, it's just a constant Yeah. It's just a constant navigation. There's some, I am informed a little bit by, I think you mentioned Janet Lansbury as well, just like Mm. certain kind of, you know, child development, uh, you know, sort of, you know, thought leaders in the space to help me just understand, um, understand normal childhood development, like what, you know, what's kind of expected by certain ages. And then, um, and then, yeah, it's a constant shift from, you know, when they're initially born uh, they're still quite, there's like the mother infant diet You're essentially still one organism. And then it's just like gradually, um, gradually equipping your child with the, you know, with the um, confidence to navigate different experiences on their own. Um, so, and you want, yeah, it's it, it is sort of a real tension between wanting to encourage your child to develop their own, um, their own individual unique expression, um, while at the same time teaching them to navigate others, you know, unique expressions, and to um, uh, you know move them from that kind of maximum egocentric mode to you know just becoming. I mean, I think this this does tend to develop uh, already. There's not a ton of you know over explicit things you need to do for this development, but, you know, just becoming aware that of other of others experiences and being able to navigate those. So, um, so yeah, you don't, I feel like sometimes parenting in the past has been, or at least my experience of parenting and a lot of my friends is overly authoritarian in the, in the sense of quashing, you know, your own, experience or you know denying or repressing your own feelings in certain situations um, and not teaching you how to pro- process those in a healthy way especially somatically um and in favor of having a harmonious social you know existence in the family um and um and then and then i feel like sometimes the pendulum swings a little too far in the other direction where people who have experienced that kind of parenting will like overemphasize the unique individual you know spent you know you know like the preciousness of a child but then but then we're like never quite moving the child out of that egocentric more yeah. sort of narcissistic way of being into into you know engaging in a more fruitful way um so yeah i think there's there's a happy medium there and that that's the dance of parenting <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I think you you described it well. It, that's, that's beautiful. I know we're we're coming up on time. So maybe just I to to wrap, I feel like we've talked a lot about kind of the power of psychedelics, um, the way in which they can kind of play at the individual level. And there's just so much potential there that you know re- makes me really excited. How do you think about I mean I know we're both really passionate about the healthcare system and just the way in which like the existing paradigm and the existing approach is hindering wellness and health? Like, how do you think about the potential for something new or introducing more holistic health into the, into the system?
0: I mean, yeah, I, it, that to me is like, I mean, that's literally a trillion dollar question because if we can help, if we can help people to, yeah, utilize kind of, conventional healthcare less, which in, you know, in your healthy, you know, in your healthy state, you wouldn't need these, a lot of the services that are now on offer, um, then yeah, we'll be much better off as a society. I I feel like this kind of other system is developing in parallel with the current system. And so it's not, I mean, the current system is under tremendous amount of strain right now. I mean, I don't, for anyone who follows the healthcare space after COVID, it's just there's been sort of mass exodus of, I mean, I'm kind of part of it, like the healthcare workers outside of the conventional system are just burnt out or just not. Um, it, staffing is at, in emergency rooms and in our own surgery centers, is, it's a real challenge. It feels like this is what a system in collapse looks like, um, but we're kind of not really acknowledging that. Um, It it feels like a system that has, it's like, like a cancer that's starting to just necrose in the center. And then, and so it feels like, and it feels like a lot of people are awakening to a lot of what we've been talking about, which is like this, this sovereignty, this like really taking ownership and agency in your own health and and returning back to very, it's so simple. It's it's really just eating real food, Um, food that's grown in healthy soil that's not depleted from monocrop agriculture. It's, you know, reconnecting, with full presence to yourself and to your surroundings. Um, and so I feel like this kind of parallel, at least here in the Oregon model with psilocybin therapy, there's, it's being set up as a parallel system. It's, it's quite separate from the current medical system. So it's not a medical model, um, which I think is a, w- a wonderful kind of experiment to see how, you know, you can maybe enter into this other ecosystem. Um, and have that be just as supportive for you as the, you know, more for kind of chronic things that you're moving through and then hopefully utilize the old system for more, for just what it does best, which are like acute issues. And so, and this kind of weaves back a little bit into what we, what we had talked about before, um, which was just um, kind of like, yeah, having, I'm not sure what it would exactly look like, but if we moved towards something like there's a, a, like a universal basic care for that would take care of you. If you have a life changing diagnosis or a life changing injury or something like that event. And and we want to live in a society where we take care of everyone in those kinds of situations and then leave all of the preventative care to be like in sort of a, a separate system um, where, you know, you could, we could do something like what, uh, some other countries do like Singapore, where you have like a, a health savings account that you do d- devote to these other kind of services, um, in a more kind of in a, it, yeah, just in a kind of a separate system, but we'll see, we'll see how it evolves.
1: It's so complicated. My, my jaded view of it all is just, you know, the existing system is so ingrained. There's so much, you know, economic, just activity attached to it, our country is so focused on like GDP and all these complicated components that to dramatically change the, sh- the system in the, in the short term is really difficult. And so it's inspiring to me to see others like you who are building alternative approaches outside of it are going to probably over time figure out how to latch them back in. And, you know, I think the more experiments we have, the more ways we're just testing different ways of driving health and wellness. That that's really our only shot, I think, at at, at ending up somewhere that that's any better. Um, as a closing off point, I know you and I could talk about fixing healthcare for the for the rest of the day, but I thought it would be fun to close with this this idea that I've heard you talk about as a way of people just to start embracing some of this. What do you mean by finding the mystical in the mundane, and how can how can others start to play with that idea?
0: Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to the whole the idea of your your reality being a controlled hallucination, Um, and so um, and also just going back to the idea too of kind of the the crux of all of this work is really to take um, altered states and convert it into altered traits, and so and so that really comes down to. how you wake up in the morning and how you move through a morning, maybe morning ritual versus a morning routine and, and, or, and just your experience of being in the shower or your experience of washing the dishes or your experience of, you know, uh, you know, watching your child on, you know, play with his trains. Like it's just, um, there's, there's a way to bring those experiences of universal, like oneness of, 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 of dissolving that illusion of separation. And, and then all of life becomes this, um, just sparkling, uh, just like sparkling beauty that just was behind a veil before your veil of your just like kind of default state of consciousness. Um, and so, but that takes an active, it's an active participation and it's dynamic and it's so easy to fall back into your old ways of thinking because um, because of everything we talked about before is just how we evolved. It, it's just like it, you're it. This is the idea of awakening and transcendence to me. That's what the be, becoming enlightened is to me is when you're, you know, it's the chopping wood and carrying water is at the end of the day is what you go back to doing. It's changing your child's diaper. It's, you know, and then, but, but like, awakening to the magnificence of this being that, you know, you helped bring into the world onto the earthly plane and not forgetting that it's so easy to forget that, to just fall into, um, you know, what I need to do next and not living again, that's like also living in the future, living in the past. It's, it's as simple as taking a really deep breath feeling it in your body, and then awakening all of those other neural, you know, those other pathways for experiencing, yeah, the mystical and what seems like mundane everyday activities.
1: It's so beautiful. Tracy, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, your wisdom. I'm super inspired by how you live your life and and what you're working on creating. So cannot wait to to see what unfolds there.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Sam. This was awesome. We should definitely do it again.
1: Thank you for listening. Wow. There are so many ideas in this conversation that I'm excited to explore in my own life. As mentioned earlier, I just launched a newsletter on a more intuitive approach to fitness. If you're interested in that, I've added a link to it in the show notes. As always, please spread the word and don't hesitate to reach out with questions, ideas, and themes we should explore at On Renewal.